Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's book-centered edition of Cato Audio, Alvaro Vargas Llosa and Clint Bullock discuss immigration. Economist Christopher Coyne discusses the failures of foreign aid. Writer Emily Miller gets a gun in D.C. And Cato's Michael Cannon describes how Obamacare might unravel. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If it weren't totally clear already, we now know that the federal government, specifically the National Security Agency, is keeping a treasure trove of information not just on people they suspect to be terrorists, but on millions of Americans, uh, perhaps many millions of Americans. Here to talk about that and the fallout uh, of of this uh, revelation, Jim Harper, Director of Information Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute, and Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute who has been uh, studying many of the legal aspects associated with this uh, broad-scale collection of Americans' data. Gentlemen, welcome. Now, uh, just to get started here, uh, Julian, you know, a lot has happened since this uh, story broke. And of course, I'm a little hesitant to talk about it here just because we're probably going to have a lot more revelations before this hits the mailboxes and iPods of our subscribers. But if you wouldn't mind, give us the broad strokes of what we've learned in the past month or so about uh, the government collection of our information. One category of what we learned is that the secret FISA court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC, has interpreted a provision of the Patriot Act known as Section 215, or the Business Records Provision, in a way that allows massive collection of data, of essentially entire vast databases full of information about Americans that is, of course, not all related to terrorism because it's everyone's data, to allow NSA and FBI to mine it for information that may be useful later. And this is part of a trend where the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court was really created in 1978 essentially just to approve or deny warrants for intelligence surveillance, wiretaps. And over time, as it has faced tricky questions and been asked to approve more sophisticated forms of surveillance, has become a kind of secret common law court, which is almost an oxymoron. I don't know if you can have a secret common law, but they have actually developed a body of precedent interpreting the law, often in very surprising ways. So you have Jim Sensenbrenner, Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner, who is one of the authors of the Patriot Act and one of its strongest champions, saying that he was stunned and, frankly, outraged that, of course, this provision, which was supposed to be used to get records that were relevant to particular investigations, was never meant to be used in this bulk way because it was not meant to be to get entire databases, only the particular things that were specifically relevant to an investigation. So you were investigating, you know, Jim Harper, and so you get Jim Harper's phone records and maybe the phone records of some people he is associated with, but not everyone's. It seems, though, that the court has essentially decided that relevance has a counterintuitive meaning so that an entire database can be relevant if it contains relevant records. Let me jump in there because it's been interesting now to have confirmed 
the thinking that's gone on behind the walls of secrecy. Some years ago, might be 2006 or so, Dr. Donald Kerr, who was a deputy and a director of National Intelligence Office, he gave a speech in which he talked about privacy. The old version of privacy has to do with anonymity and all these other things. Think of it these days as information that we have access to, but there's enough controls on it that you're still protected. That was an important fork in the concept of privacy, and evidently it flourished within the FISA court and in the intelligence community, bringing what uh, I find to be a general warrant being revealed of authorizing the government to access all information about all people's calls, data about the calls people make, not content. But uh, it's a diversion from the true sense of privacy, the sense that the founders were trying to protect when they wrote the Fourth Amendment. Now, one of the, the odd sort of terms of art that uh, I've talked to both of you about is the idea of collection itself. That is, in various testimony, this idea that collection doesn't actually mean the well, I can't find another word, collection of data into a database. It, it, uh, Jim, could you unpack that a little bit? Well, it's been interesting to see what I think is kindly called self-deception on the part of the intelligence community. They started calling collection what happens when they take data out of its binary form or whatever form and put it into some human-readable format. So they told themselves this story that, no, we're not collecting it. It's just over here in a database that we control. We're collecting it when we go to look at it. And they use that skewed, let's say, Orwellian sense of language to then talk to policymakers and talk to the public. And the end result, I think, in fairness, is that uh, James Clapper lied to Congress in answering a question put to him by Senator Ron Wyden. I think that's actually pretty clear. I mean, Wyden unambiguously asked whether there was any program under which NSA was collecting any form of data at all about millions of Americans. And it seems clear, certainly, that at the very least, this call records program and internet metadata programs did involve precisely that kind of large-scale collection. I think part of the rationale here is that if you were trying to filter out, let's say, certain email traffic from a fiber optic cable, in some sense, you do have to filter everything. You need to have some kind of computer that is checking every packet to say, is this the traffic I'm looking for? Is this packet part of the message that I'm trying to pick up? And, and so in some sense, at least very temporarily, you need some of that to pass through a government computer. But you do, I think, strain the bounds of plausibility when if something is actually recorded, stored in a database, you claim not to have it until anyone has looked at it. The, the problem with these back-end checks is that once you've got data, you've got the data. The rules that limit what you do with the data, though, only last as long as you decide that those are the rules you want to obey. If you change the rules secretly, you still have the data that you got under the old rules. And there's no point at which it seems that uh, the data is slated for destruction or termination. Jim Harper? I'm not aware of any limits on keeping the data, but there may be some. One of the things that's been released as part of these NSA leaks or the minimization and retention procedures. So for certain kinds of data, it seems that this kind of metadata and also substantive communications of Americans, unless they are affirmatively determined to uh, contain foreign intelligence, are erased after five years. Other kinds of information collected are basically retained indefinitely. But of course, if at year four and a half, they decide they'd actually really still like to keep it, they can always change the rules at the time. Julian's sense is better. My sense had been that a copy of it is probably still sitting there in the 
uncollected database. That aside, it's worth talking about what data is, what metadata is, and explaining to people that because that terminology came out and it was an early defense of these programs that it's it's only metadata. That relies on a case called Smith versus Maryland, which was one of the third-party doctrine cases that the court developed uh, coming out of the Bank Secrecy Act in the very early 1970s. Smith versus Maryland, the court determined that data about your phone calling, that is, who you called and what time you called and how long the call lasted, was not subject to Fourth Amendment protection because it was information that you had shared with the telephone company. So having shared it, that third party, you don't have a Fourth Amendment claim to it. This was all an extension of that saying, well, what we're collecting is just all Americans calling information and we're collecting all Americans emailing information but not the content. That distinction between content and metadata probably wasn't strong in the first place because who you call and what time you call them and how long you talk to them is very revealing. To illustrate this, I'll sometimes talk about, let's say, let's say you have a teen son or daughter and it's revealed that you've been speaking to them for long periods of time late at night. That says something about your family life that could be very revealing and that could be used against you or you just don't want to have made available. So that's one example of how quote-unquote metadata is actually personal information that could be quite revealing. When we get into the Internet context, it's even more revealing because there are so many more different transactions and different types of transactions that it's a window onto your life and your lifestyle. In addition, metadata is computer processable. It doesn't really lie. A conversation, you can say something ironically, and nobody who doesn't know you really intimately, maybe and often the person on the other end of the call might not even understand. So that can't be a machine process to gain a real factual understanding of what's happening. Metadata is really easy. I mean, it was never, I think, plausible that people, just because they allowed the phone company somewhere in a database to know who they were calling, no, sort of in quotation marks, some computer knew, means that you surrender your expectation of privacy. People use phones to call suicide hotlines, to call divorce lawyers, to call substance abuse counselors, to call all sorts of sensitive numbers and services, to call Plant Parenthood. And I think just intuitively, people do expect that to be private. They don't expect it to be public information that, hey, this person called Planned Parenthood or a suicide hotline from their home phone number, or that they you know, visited a certain kind of website from their home. That's not information people publish or think is public. But even beyond that sort of obvious sensitivity, the kind of sophisticated analytics that can be applied using what's called big data analysis, not just to an individual's calling or internet usage, but to patterns that reveal something about them when compared to huge statistical populations is even far more revealing than anything that could have been imagined at the time of the Smith v. Maryland ruling. There's a, a case uh, that was reported a while back that's sort of a, just a, a weird one where marketers for Target, the retailer, used big data analysis of shopping patterns to determine that a young woman was pregnant before she had even told her family. And so they were sort of shocked to start getting ads for maternity wear and pacifiers by monitoring information about physical location, about patterns, what time of day or night you're using the internet. They can use various kinds of statistical profiling to learn really quite detailed information about you. In the case of internet metadata, if you have sufficiently detailed traffic analysis, the this distinction between content the content of the communication and the metadata itself in a way breaks down entirely, very often through extremely sophisticated analysis of the 
precise you know, packet level metadata, you can infer information about the communication itself. But even at a much kind of higher level, the fact that you participate in a particular email listserv that is itself a political group is information that is revealed through metadata. You know, every member of that group is if you do one hop analysis from a target, caught up there. So you've got the equivalent of a membership list. And not only that, but a really kind of real-time map of who is participating in conversations and how often. Think again, for example, of internet chats. It's not really like a phone call. A phone call, you learn that a phone call started at a particular time, ended at a particular time. But if you've got the metadata from the equivalent of a phone conversation through an internet chat service, it looks very different because each sort of thing you say is a separate message. So you don't just know a conversation happened. You know, uh, you know, person one sent a long message and then person two sent a shorter one a few minutes later. You've really got a kind of blow by blow. You don't know necessarily exactly what was said. But again, it's very often certainly possible to draw inferences from that combined with the other things people are doing. So we're having a conversation and I'm looking up a website about a particular topic. Now, it's interesting to me because what President Obama, what a lot of law enforcement and federal intelligence officials have said is basically, we're not interested in this kind of information about you. That is to say, we're not interested in the contents of your phone calls. We're not interested in a lot of this information. But if you just examine the history of the federal law enforcement specifically, they have information about people who have done nothing wrong the use that it is actually has been actually put to. Absolutely. One of the more benign cases of this you can cite is from the the JFK administration when there was a initially probably legitimate series of wiretaps investigating potential corruption to see if the Dominican Republic was bribing officials in the agriculture department or in Congress to support a particular change they wanted to the sugar tariff laws. So the initial investigation may have been legitimate. Now, it turns out they didn't find any evidence of corruption. But what they got was a lot of useful political intelligence about who stood where on a bill and what it would take to get someone to flip and what kind of pressure could be brought to bear on different parties. And that information was delivered to the White House. And the FBI determined that it proved extremely useful to the White House in getting their preferred policy implemented. And I think you see the same kind of thing that the famous wiretaps of Martin Luther King were, of course, used to try and discredit and slander him and to drive him into depression, but also to produce intelligence, political intelligence that Lyndon Johnson reviewed in order to plan strategy at the Democratic Convention because it gave him information about what various delegates were planning to do. So, yeah, very often what you see is that there are investigations that may be legitimate initially, but it turns out you've got all this useful information and there are other things you can do with it later. And that's even more likely to be the case when you're not just talking about a wiretap of a particular targeted person, but hey, a huge pool of data about every American's phone and internet activity. And well, it was for terrorism now, but in a year, maybe we could use this to find tax cheats. Maybe we could use this to find pot smokers. Maybe we could use this to find, you know, Tea Party members because we've decided that that is a a dangerous and radical group. That's extreme, but you never know. It's secret, so... It turns out that the intelligence and national defense communities operate under the same bureaucratic incentives that every place else does. So if you look at the Environmental Protection Agency and you see them as an agency that grasps for power and is constantly looking for new things to do, whether or not they're cost beneficial, 
if you look at the Department of Transportation or the Department of Labor, some of their bureaus the same way, you should probably think about the intelligence community and the defense community similarly. Now, we require intelligence in, in national defense. That's why we constitute government. But that doesn't excuse it from thinking about it or from oversight that is based on the same principles that they'll constantly try to expand their powers. It's particularly pernicious, as Julian says, when they have access to huge amounts of data that they can repurpose behind closed doors. And I think that's probably one of the most important things. We do oversight of the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, using conventional methods. These programs were allowed to come into existence, and they were allowed to continue in existence and still do continue at this point because of secrecy, because it's behind a wall of secrecy that the programs were originally created. We've seen them pop their heads up from time to time with total information awareness, however many years back, until William Sapphire wrote a very persuasive column that, that stomped it out, but actually just dispersed it and put it onto the black budget. The legal determinations made by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court were in a secret court. The secret court didn't hear arguments from any opponent of the government. And guess what happens when an adversarial process doesn't have any adversaries? The government wins, and it won over and over again. In a lot of ways, this is a kind of Potemkin oversight process. You've got the form of oversight, the form of checks and balances, but not the substance. It's like the old cargo cults where uh, natives would build kind of elaborate fake runways with fake lights and, and kind of hope the planes would come down. It's sort of like that. You've got something that looks like a court, something that looks like, you know, congressional oversight, but without the things that make it work in every other arena. So, yeah, court oversight works because judges are incentivized to publish opinions that will not be ridiculed by the legal community because the legal logic is nonsensical or obviously designed to achieve a particular result and because they're hearing the best arguments that attorneys from both sides are able to make. On the congressional side, members of Congress rely very heavily on their staffs. I know having worked on congressional staff in both the House and Senate personal offices and committees, they rely very heavily on their staff. And generally speaking, the oversight, quote unquote, Potemkin oversight, I think is a good way of putting it, that happened in the Congress is that a small number of intelligence committee members were given oral access to information about what was happening. That is, they were told to their ears what was happening. They weren't writing things down. They didn't have staff there to review it with them. Many of them are older people. Senior members of Congress tend to be older people who don't understand how data works, don't understand computing, didn't understand the consequence of these programs. So that oversight was insufficient, and the claims that this has all been briefed to Congress are empty. And I think the most important thing is that the reason why Congress can work doing its oversight is because there is also public oversight. So the secrecy wall that came down allowed these programs to be created disrupted judicial oversight, disrupted congressional oversight, totally frustrated public oversight of those bodies. You imagine any department of government, imagine that all Congress hears about it is a half-hour briefing with no notes and no staff. What are they going to hear? Well, the EPA is doing great and all of the things they do save lives and are cost-effective and the IRS will tell you exactly the same thing and the National Science Foundation will tell you the same thing. If that's what you're relying on for the information you're using for oversight, then yeah, everything every branch of government is doing will always be wonderful and beneficial and not require any further checks. And it's the most important thing in the world. Julian, last year, very late, we discussed the 
11th hour, almost literally 11th hour passage of a reauthorization of the FISA Amendments Act or amendments to the FISA Act, we got essentially four amendments that were tossed out. We had Patrick Leahy, Rand Paul, and a couple of others who basically wanted some more oversight and they were essentially shouted down procedurally. What is on the horizon now in terms of lawmakers attempting to get some sort of grasp of this national security apparatus? Certainly, at least we've started a debate. The surveillance under the FISA Amendments Act goes beyond metadata to content, content of phone and in particular internet communications. And this is not traditional warrant-based surveillance where there's a particular named individual target, but programmatic surveillance. The only real restriction is that the target has to be foreign. Usually the way this is going to work is that there's an entire foreign group or corporation that is the target, and then you have individual NSA analysts basically sifting huge streams of traffic and deciding which particular accounts and emails and other kinds of traffic to be pulled in. We don't really still understand quite enough about how that operates in principle. We've learned about one particular program called PRISM that works with a series of internet companies like Google and Yahoo and Microsoft and Apple to pull in data that they've got stored on their machines. And what we have learned is frankly a bit disturbing. We know that the procedures allow them to collect communications if they have a 51% confidence that one party to it is foreign. So on the scale of tens of thousands of communications, if that's where your bar is, there's going to be a lot of American stuff pulled into that. And what we've also learned is that certainly if it's encrypted, but even if it's not, there's a very broad kind of permission to store that information even when Americans have been party to the communication, and even in some cases when it's totally American communication. And it's not clear how rigorous the checks on this are. All right, gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. Julian Sanchez, research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Jim Harper, information policy studies director here at the Cato Institute. He's also a co-editor of the book, Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing and How to Fix It on several related issues. You can read more of the debate over this issue at our website, cato.org. Why do millions of people continue to risk their lives, sometimes losing them in the pursuit of a chance to establish themselves in a foreign land? Author Alvaro Vargas Llosa argues that the reasons for most immigrants coming to the United States are no different than they would be for you and me. He outlines who immigrants are, their values, their attitudes in his new book, Global Crossings, Immigration, Civilization, and America. Yosa spoke at the Cato Institute in June. So I've been asked, why did I write this book? Why was I interested in this topic? And uh, well, there are several reasons. Perhaps one of them has to do with my, I guess, identity problem. I've been called a Spaniard in Peru. I've been called a Sudaca in Spain, which is a pejorative term for South American. I've been called a Pakistani in London, where I was based for a while. And now I'm called a Hispanic, which in Spanish means Iberian, in other words, Spaniard. So I, I don't really know where I belong and who I am, but I guess uh, it's probably a, a good enough reason to explore this important issue today. So let me um, tell you a little bit about what I do in this book. What I do is I take on all the different myths that I have seen over the years. 
that are really driving this discussion and this debate, including the current discussion in the Senate and soon in the House as well about immigration reform. I won't cover all of them, but I will share with you a few and give you my perspective on them. And I uh, hope that this will help uh, at least clarify some of the misinformation that's out there that's really quite striking. One first myth, and I've, all of what I'm going to say, I've heard many people say, people of uh, all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of places. I didn't make any of this up. But one line of argument basically says, we're getting the wrong kinds of immigrants today. We used to get the right kind of immigrants. I am not anti-immigration. I'm just against this current type of immigrant that we're getting today. And the answer to that is the United States always got the wrong kind of immigrants. That's always been the case. I mean, the variety of uh, immigrant sources and types of immigration that this country has received in the last uh, two centuries, two and a half centuries, is simply astounding. I mean, of course, between 1830 and 1880, yes, it was mostly Northern Europeans, but between 1880 and 1920, it was all about Southern Europeans and Eastern Europeans and Central Europeans who had nothing to do with Northern Europeans. They looked different. They had different cultures. They were the Mexicans of yesteryear. And uh, of course, after that, you had, even before that, you had people from Asia. You had the Chinese during the gold rush. You had the Japanese at the end of the 19th century and early 20th centuries. And then, yes, you had Hispanics a bit further on. And you had Indians after 1965 because of a change in the law that triggered a sort of unintended consequence. So there's always been the wrong kind of immigrant in the United States. It's simply not true. Another important myth says that the U.S. is getting a disproportionate number of immigrants. We are, this morning, just this morning on a radio show, I heard the host say this, we're getting more than any other country in the world. They're all wanting to come here. They don't want to go to other countries. Again, this is very silly. About 3% of the world population is made up of first-generation immigrants, and illegal immigrants constitute about one-sixth of the immigrants that travel from one place to another every year. So a total number of immigrants every year is about 215. The total number of illegal immigrants about 30, 30 million. The U.S. gets, in terms of just illegal immigrants, one-sixth of 1% 1 of its population. So clearly a much smaller proportion than many other countries are getting. So again, it's not true that the U.S. is getting a disproportionate number of immigrants. This is a worldwide phenomenon, and other countries are relatively speaking, getting even more immigrants than the United States, illegal immigrants than the United States, undocumented immigrants than the United States. Another myth says that the only motive behind immigration is uh, poverty. Why should we in the United States solve world poverty? I mean, we've got enough poor of our own as it is. Let us take care of our own. Let's not solve world poverty. And that's not true. That's not the only motive behind Migration. In fact, the poorest of the poor almost never migrate from one country to the other. They migrate within the borders of their own countries. Let's take Europe. Until the 1980s, the early 1980s, Europe was a source of migration, of out-migration, I mean, people leaving Europe. And that was a wealthy and prosperous continent before they got into this mess, which is a different story. Germany, the richest among the rich in Europe, was exporting about half a million people every year until the 1980s. So clearly the, the motivation behind that was not poverty. South Korea is a source of a significant number of immigrants or immigrants who come to the United States. And that's a rich country. 
Bangladeshi women who are very poor, the poorest among the poor, migrate very little, even in Asia, which is the continent that has the greatest number of migrants every year. So I could go on and on and on. What are the motives? I mean, they vary. Yes, of course, economic conditions are part of the story. But you have everything, including distressed conditions at home, politically, institutionally, I mean, not necessarily economically, family ties, occupational preference, adventure, I mean, all sorts of different reasons for migrating. And historical ties have a lot to do with it as well. The U.S. has historically been entangled around the world in conflicts, in all sorts of uh, exchanges, uh, sometimes friendly, sometimes not so friendly, and that has created conditions for permanent migration. There's been a significant Filipino migration to the United States, as we all know, of course, and that has to do with involvement in the war at the end of the 19th century and also with the encouragement that the United States gave to Filipinos to come to the United States historically, including a a special program set up after the Second World War for Filipino nurses. All those were signals that the U.S. sent to Filipinos saying it's okay to come. We have historical ties. We recognize we're bound together, so come to the United States. Mexican migration, the origin of Mexican migration to the United States is not poor Mexicans wanting a better life in the United States. It was U.S. business interest needing to replace Eastern Europeans, first Japanese workers and then Eastern European workers in the early 20th century. So they went to Mexico and asked for Mexican workers, and Mexican workers started coming to the United States to work, particularly in a railroad construction. So all these historical ties have a lot to do with it as well. The common argument for intervening abroad is to alleviate potential or existing human suffering. Repeatedly, however, state-led humanitarian efforts have failed miserably. Why do these organizations, staffed with experts, fail? Using the tools of economics, Dr. Christopher Coyne's new book, Doing Bad by Doing Good, Why Humanitarian Action Fails, shifts the discussion from the moral imperative of how governments should behave to a positive analysis of how they actually do. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. So really this book came about as a follow-up to my previous book, After War, and in that book I focused on U.S. efforts to export democratic institutions abroad through military occupation. And one of the questions I always got when I started talking or presenting that book was, okay, even if we buy into your argument that the U.S. isn't very good at exporting sustainable liberal democratic institutions, which of course many people disagree with in itself, what about humanitarian action? And then they would bring up some instance of terrible human suffering and they would say, well, of course, you must believe that the US government or the governments of developed countries have an active role to play internationally to address human suffering instance X or Y. So I started pursuing this line of research to answer that question. And very quickly, I realized that the questions can't be separated because what's called humanitarian action, short-term relief, has become so blended with longer-term development and military and foreign policy goals that while categorically we can separate those things out, it becomes very difficult to ever isolate one or just to stop at a certain point. If you look at what falls under the guise of humanitarian action or state-led humanitarian action, very quickly it transforms into long-term development, military operations, counterterrorism operations, and so on. Those things have become so integrated especially in the post-9-11 world, that it becomes a very complex topic very quickly. So when I talk about state-led humanitarian action, what I'm talking about is any coercive or non-coercive action that's intended to alleviate suffering. And I, I purposefully keep this definition broad 
And just to give you some examples of things that fall under the purview of my definition, Hurricane Katrina in the United States, that is a state-led effort domestically to alleviate human suffering. Extreme poverty, the various initiatives of the U.S. government and international community more broadly that aim to alleviate poverty around the world post-earthquake Haiti in 2010, and Libya. That's a more recent case. That would be an example of a coercive state-led humanitarian action. And there's many others as well that you can think of, but I just wanted to give you a flavor for the broad array of things that I'm trying to address in this book. And really what I try to do is apply the economic way of thinking to develop a general theory of humanitarianism. So why economics? And what I want to do is argue that economics is important for two reasons. The first is that ultimately, if you think about it, issues of humanitarianism and vulnerability to humanitarian crises are issues of economic development. Countries that are wealthier, societies that are wealthier, suffer less from humanitarian crises. When a natural disaster occurs, which can't be prevented, wealthier countries are better able to prepare and respond to it. This is an empirical fact. Likewise, Wealthier countries require certain institutions, typically protections of property rights, basic constraints on governments, and so on. When these things are in place and they're well-functioning, it limits the violations of rights by governments against citizens. So in wealthier countries, we tend, it's not always the case, but we tend to see fewer cases of government violations of, of human rights and humanitarian crises of those sorts. Second is that economics focuses on constraints. It focuses on the fact that we face scarcity, we have a scarce amount of resources, and we have to figure out how to allocate those resources. And in taking that into account, what the economic way of thinking focuses on is the constraints we face, not just in terms of the quantity of resources, but also our intelligence, human reason, our ability to allocate resources in a manner that makes people better off. Now, this might appear obvious, but if you look at pretty much almost, I don't want to say all, but almost any quote from those involved in politics in general, you will see that they pretend like constraints don't exist. One example, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. This quote, this is in front of the Council of Foreign Relations, a talk she gave, we can do whatever we want if we just try hard enough. I'm sure you've all heard politicians say, we sent a man to the moon, therefore we can do X, right? And then they insert whatever they want to accomplish there, and it's supposed to imply we can do whatever we want because we sent a man to the moon. What is it that governments can do in attempting to help people who are suffering. No one denies that people suffer around the world. Many of these discussions turn on moral arguments. You'll often hear people say, we ought to do or we must do something to help them. And you understand why. When all of us see images of human suffering, it's a natural human impulse to want to help people. And so we say, we must do something. Here's the issue, though. In the attempt to do something, to act quickly, it's not just that efforts might fail, have no effect. It's very possible, and oftentimes is actually the case, that efforts to help those in need generate an array of negative consequences which impose significant costs on the very people we are attempting to assist. In that instance, refraining from intervention is preferable to intervening even if you are driven by the best of intentions. In other words, economics and the economic way of thinking cannot by itself form moral judgments. Moral judgments fall outside the purview of economics, but it can inform those judgments. Because when we take into account the relevant constraints, things that initially appear to have moral weight, we must help people who are starving. Once we take into account constraints and the reality that we face, those things may not actually have moral weight because we can't accomplish them in practice. It's been five years since the landmark Heller ruling legalizing handgun ownership in the District of Columbia. 
Emily Miller, a senior editor at the Washington Times, decided to get a gun and has learned even after the Heller ruling it's not so simple. She detailed some of what she's learned in a forthcoming book, Emily Gets Her Gun. She spoke at the Cato Institute in June. You know, as a citizen, a journalist, I've been aware that, you know, Heller had been decided that these guys had fought to get me my Second Amendment rights restored. So I knew it was legal, so I couldn't understand why everybody was saying you can't get it. I soon found out. So I went to get a gun, and as we said, I went to my editor and said, I'm going to get a gun anyway. How about I write about it in the Washington Times? He said, that's fine. I said, I think it'll take probably a couple weeks. It ended up taking me four months to get a gun. To get a legal gun. And I'll add, as you know, as we were speaking earlier about the right to bear arms, and which we hope to get the city to be recognized at some point as well, I spent four months getting a gun. It cost $435 in fees, and I can't take it out of the home. So that's what it costs just to keep arms in Washington. What I did was, and I could take up four months telling you the story of what it took to get a gun in D.C. What I found out and what the response was on Twitter was after these gentlemen fought the Supreme Court to get me my right to keep arms in D.C., the city council passed these absolutely outrageous registration laws, registration rules on what you had to do to get one to make it virtually impossible. They didn't want us to have guns, and they still don't want us to have guns, and they will tell you they don't want you to have guns. So I, not knowing any of this really, I went, I started by just going to the police station. I'd never been there before. It was a firearm registration office. And I walked in and I said, I'm here to buy a gun. And I found out there were 17 steps in order to register a legal gun. And actually, after I went through it, I found out there were 24 steps. So it was 17 that I was facing. And I briefly run through what it took to get a gun. You have to fill out an eligibility form, and then you have to get it notarized. And I personally never had anything notarized before, so I didn't even know where to do that. You have to find a DC certified instructor to take this five-hour safety class. Then you take the five-hour safety class and get the instructor to fill out the form. You have to provide proof that you have perfect vision but I found out my driver's license sufficed, so that was good. Proof of residency, that was easy. Two passport photos. They don't. It's not like the DMV. They don't do it for you. You have to study for a test, and that's a whole separate time frame. Then you take a 20 multiple choice test, written test, in the police station. I later found out you can only take that after you bought the gun and have a serial number. I went to the station to take my test, had studied, had very ready to take it, and they wouldn't let me take it, had to leave. You have to get fingerprinted. That the police will do for you. And they make you pay for it. You have to pay fees, $60 worth of fees to the city for that. But you have to pay the the DMV. So if you've ever been to the DMV in DC and you see those lines, some of those people, very few, but some of them are like me, they're to pay for your gun fees. So those lines just as long. You have to buy the gun. And as I found out from the police, you can't buy one in DC. And then, which I didn't find out then, I found out later, that the gun you buy can't have a high-capacity magazine, which I found after I bought my SIG, Sour 229, that it comes with a magazine that is 13 rounds magazine. That's the standard. So you can't just buy it and have it shipped to our dealer. You have to find someone who will exchange that magazine for one that's not high-capacity, meaning that they stick a little metal thing into the magazine so it can't take three more rounds. That took weeks in and of itself. And 
Then we have one gun dealer in D.C., Charles Sykes, who I've gotten to know very, very well through this process and spent quite a bit of time in his office. He transfers the gun. He does not buy or sell guns. He only transfers. His fee is $125, and you can gasp, and I know we've all discussed that that's the highest fee in the country. Having spent quite a bit of time with Charles Sykes, I am a defender of his fees because so few people go through what I did to get guns. He only works a few hours a day. At this point, it's about 1,200 guns are registered a year. Many of those are already pre-owned, so they don't need Sykes at all. Many of them are multi-guns for some people. He's barely, barely, I averaged it out, making about $30,000 a year off this. So he's not getting rich. He really does it because he believes in our ability to have a Second Amendment. So anyway, Charles Sykes, transfer fee, $125, cash only. But there is an ATM machine near the DMV. I found that out in the process. Then you take your firearms, your documents, to Sykes. Once the gun has been delivered to him, and he will only accept it with a 10-round magazine, you take him your documents. He fills them out. He calls the FBI, does your NICS check while you're there. Then you take your forms back up to the police station, and then a police officer comes, escorts you down to Sykes' office, takes your gun away from you, takes it for a ballistics test. And I, having never even touched my own gun at this point, I wanted to go, because I had no idea where they're taking it, wouldn't let me come to the ballistics test. So they're going to go shoot my gun. They did shoot my gun. And then they bring it back, and then they escort you and your gun back to the police station, and then they approve your gun. And I kept asking along the way, what if I do my 17 steps and they don't approve my gun. Then I'm at all this money, and the police officers were like, that's the system, that's the system, that's the process. And I have to say, I heard the word the process about 50 times out of those police officers' mouths. I mean, it was the most frustrating place. Anyway, then you go and you fill out your paperwork, you give it to them, and they say, okay, now you have a five-day waiting period. So then after the five-day waiting period, then they go, okay, now you have five more day waiting period before Charles Sykes can give you a gun. So there's these two waiting periods. And then you go get your gun from Charles Sykes. You take it to the police station. They look at it. They approve it. They make sure it's in a lockbox. They won't let you take it without a lockbox, which is federal transport laws. And then I took my gun home on the metro because that was the way I got there. And they drove the police. And it was a little bit to drive the police crazy. <laughs> I did it that way. But I'll tell you, in that whole process, the part that was the most onerous and was the part where I was thinking, I give up. I don't care anymore. I don't want a gun. I actually went to my editor. I said, I give up. I'm not writing the story anymore. I don't want to do it. It was the five-hour safety class process. And the way the city made that so impossible is they put together this list. Two pages is the thing I got the first day. They hand it to you when you walk in. All it is is names and phone numbers. No websites, no emails, no addresses, no affiliation, no idea who these people are. And then the city doesn't regulate it, so you're just... You don't know what they cost. You don't know anything. So I started calling. I kept getting all these wrong numbers or disconnected or people being like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, I just thought, this, something's wrong here. So I spent one day just calling every name. There are 47 names on this list. It had not been updated since 2009 when this law had started. And out of the 47 people, I found four who were ready and willing and able to give this class. And the cheapest I could find was $200. The rest were $250. One guy, this was the kicker. This is the one that put me over the deep end. One guy was like, I do teach it only in Colorado. And I was like, why would you teach the DC registry safety class in Colorado? He goes, there's quite a demand. 
In Halbig v. Sibelius, four individual taxpayers and three employers are challenging a seemingly obscure IRS decree. The IRS claims the authority to issue hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to health insurance companies and to impose penalties on individual taxpayers and employers in the 33 states that have refused to establish a health insurance exchange under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Unfortunately, in doing so, the IRS has taken a giant step beyond its authority. Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, detailed the case in June. At the heart of this lawsuit, the controversy before us is whether the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or the Affordable Care Act, or the PPACA, or the ACA, or Obamacare, or the Obama Health Law, authorizes what it calls premium assistance tax credits, and what I'll probably refer to as subsidies throughout the rest of this discussion, only in states that establish their own health insurance exchanges, or in all states, regardless of whether or not they establish a health insurance exchange, regardless of whether they have their own exchange, which they've established, as 17, well, 16 states plus uh, the District of Columbia have done, or whether they have a federal fallback exchange that the law directs the Secretary of Health and Human Services to establish in a state that declines to establish its own. This is not a trivial question. The total cost, the total amount of money that the Obama health law plans to spend on these exchange-related subsidies is about $1.2 trillion over 10 years, according to the last CBO projection. In those 34 states, you've got two-thirds of the U.S. population that might be eligible for those subsidies. So in those 34 states, we're talking about two-thirds of that $1.2 trillion or $800 billion that's at stake here. This is a big question. The IRS has issued a final rule stating that it will issue those subsidies in those 34 states. It will spend that $800 billion not just spend, but tax and borrow and spend that $800 billion in those 34 states. If the statute, in fact, withholds those subsidies from non-compliant states, as various observers have predicted, this could be devastating to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. It could maim the law. It could tear down major pieces of Obamacare. It could sink Obamacare. Now, if you're new to the PPACA, or even if you're familiar with it and new to this particular controversy, you'll probably have the following reaction to this idea that the law offers those subsidies only in states that establish their own exchanges. That just can't be right. It must have been an oversight. Congress could not have intended to write the law that way. It doesn't make any sense. Those subsidies must be available in all states including through federal exchanges for the law to work. If they aren't, that means Congress effectively gave states the power to blow the whole thing up. Why would Congress give states the power to blow the whole thing up? And that's why supporters of the law, when we've raised this issue, have been incredulous. Ethan Rome, the executive director of Healthcare for America Now, said that this idea is, quote, a Republican fantasy grounded in a lack of fact. Jonathan Cohn of, at uh, The New Republic has said this is preposterous. As Kelly mentioned, Siley Lazarus upped the ante. He said it's in-your-face preposterous. And those are the nicer reactions that, that people have had to this line of argument and this lawsuit. Jonathan Gruber, who's an architect of the PPACA, has called this idea screwy, nutty, and stupid that Congress would have withheld tax credits from states that declined to create exchange. Josh Barrow, a columnist at Bloomberg, has said it, the idea is bonkers insane. Now, when Jonathan Adler, a law professor at Case Western University, my co-author on the paper that Kelly mentioned, first alerted me to this feature of the law in 2011, I thought this was a mistake. I, too, thought that this had to be a drafting error. 
And when we wrote about this issue in the Wall Street Journal that year, we called it a glitch. We thought that this was a, a mistake that Congress has made. But then we dug a little deeper. And to our surprise, we found that this was not a mistake or a glitch. This was a feature of the law included intentionally and purposefully by its authors. Now, how do we know this? Well, first, we looked at the statute. We found that the language restricting tax credits to state-established exchanges was remarkably consistent and tightly worded. In the tax credit eligibility rules found in Section 1401 of the law, there are five references to health insurance exchanges. Each and every one of them is to an exchange, quote, established by the state under Section 1311. So the law says that the taxpayer is eligible for health insurance, for premium assistance tax credits, if he is covered by a qualified health plan that was enrolled in through an exchange established by the state under Section 1311. There's no parallel language is remarkably consistent for such a hastily and messily drafted piece of legislation. And there's no parallel language anywhere in the statute authorizing those tax credits to individuals who are enrolled in health insurance plans through exchanges established by the federal government under Section 1321, which is the section that directs the federal government to establish those fallback exchanges. We found that when Congress said established by the state, they really meant it. If you look at Section 1311, it says that for purposes of that section, an exchange must be, again, quote, established by a state. And Congress knew the difference between the state and the federal government we found. And just in case you don't, or anyone else doesn't, they put it right there in the law. They clarified in Section 1304 that the term state means each of the 50 states in the District of Columbia. So this is just too tightly worded and too consistent set of tax credit eligibility rules to be a drafting error. Congress made state and federal exchanges equivalent in most ways, but not in this way. We also found that this wasn't the only way that Congress used financial incentives to encourage states to establish exchanges. In addition to offering tax credits only in states that established their own exchange, the law offered startup grants to states to get their exchanges up and running. The law imposed a pretty burdensome requirement on state Medicaid programs that lifted only, only if the state is established and got its own exchange up and running. Nor was this the only way that Congress used financial incentives to get states to implement major portions of the PPACA. Now, this point seems a little... It's almost so obvious that you might miss it. In fact, I did miss it for a while until uh, Jonathan Adler pointed it out to me. This is exactly how Congress encouraged states to implement the law's Medicaid expansion. In both cases, Congress said that residents of compliant states would get subsidies, while residents of non-compliant states would get nothing. We found that Congress knew how to create full equivalence between state and federally established exchanges if that is what Congress wanted to do. In the reconciliation bill that amended the PPACA that was crucial to House Democrats supporting it, House Democrats inserted language making exchanges established by U.S. territories fully equivalent to exchanges established by states, including language explicitly authorizing premium assistance tax credits in territorial exchanges. Again, there is no such language regarding creating full equivalence between state and federal exchanges. And finally, we found that the statute not only restricts tax credits to state-established exchanges, but the language directing the HHS secretary to establish fallback exchanges in states that don't even requires HHS to honor that restriction, even requires HHS to honor the, restriction, the, the tax credit eligibility rules that restrict uh, those tax credits to state-established exchanges. The loud but small group of anti-immigrant Republicans who helped sink immigration reform in the Bush years are threatening again, but this time the debate has shifted in favor of greater tolerance and a greater understanding of the economics surrounding immigration. 
Clint Bolick, litigation director at the Goldwater Institute, has co-authored a new book with former Florida Governor Jeb Bush, Immigration Wars, Forging an American Solution. Bolick spoke at the Cato Institute in June. The debate would not be where it is today without the Cato Institute. And this is one of the occasional wars between the Heritage Foundation and the Cato Institute. I have a tremendous amount of affection for Heritage. In fact, I met my wife at the Heritage Foundation, so I will always have affection for it. But this is one of those issues where the dichotomy between Cato and Heritage could not be greater. But this is an area where Cato has not just completely kicked Heritage's butt, but it is one where it preemptively kicked its butt. I have never seen before a pre-buttle to a study that hasn't come out yet. And that is because the Heritage Foundation's errors on this issue, on the economics of immigration, were well known and were so severe that Cato preemptively struck out on it, and Heritage just went ahead and and did it anyway. So I really want to applaud Cato's leadership on this. I have to make a personal confession to you, and and for those of you who have read the book and, and read my own personal introduction, this will come as no surprise. Even if the Heritage numbers were correct, even if immigrants were a scourge to our economy, even if they cost us massive amounts of money on net, I would still support immigration passionately. And that is because immigrants bring something intangible to this country that is absolutely priceless. And that is that they replenish the American spirit. If you want to meet someone who does not just give lip service to the basic American ideals of hard work and entrepreneurship and family, and opportunity and education, talk to an immigrant. Talk to an immigrant who has faced so many obstacles to come into our country to make a better life for themselves and for their family. And we need, especially in this era, we need much, much more of that. And I think that America cannot survive, its ideals cannot survive without the replenishment that immigrants bring to us. But of course, in addition to bringing that, they do produce tremendous tangible benefits, tangible economic benefits we absolutely cannot live without. And yet we have this debate. It is a debate that has persisted in this country for 250 years. We have had this immigration debate. And what's remarkable about that debate is that for as much as our country has changed, the terms of the debate have not changed at all. 250 years ago, Benjamin Franklin warned about letting my ancestors in. Well, in that case, maybe he had a, had a point. But he was warning against the Germanization of Pennsylvania, and he proclaimed that the German immigrants were no more likely to adopt our culture and our language as we were to adopt the German complexion. I'm not exactly sure what he was referring to there, but nonetheless, that very argument about acculturation, assimilation, persists today, and it was as wrong then as it is today. More recently, the heir to Benjamin Franklin in this regard 
was my own mom, Emily Bullock. I always like to point to her as kind of the, the epitome of the folks that we argue with on immigration. My mom and I agreed on almost every issue except for immigration, and we would just go around and around on this issue. And my mom was firmly convinced that immigrants come to our country to go on welfare, to commit crimes, and that they stubbornly refuse to adopt our culture and our language. All immigrants, that is, except for the ones that she personally knew. All of them were really hardworking, upstanding people who she would be happy to welcome into the American family. And that, that is really, the, I, I think, a, a very, very typical attitude and one that we have to really overcome in trying to address our immigration issue. The fact is that without immigrants, certainly we would not be the richest country on earth. And going forward, a lot of people are saying, well, the times are different now. We really don't need immigrants like we have in the past. I would argue that we need immigrants today more than ever before for two particular reasons, two occurrences that are different than anything that's ever happened in our country before. First, our nation is experiencing a population decline. We are no longer replenishing our population. And this presents a very, very serious demographic issue. Milton Friedman once famously said, though he was very, very pro-immigration, that open borders are incompatible with a welfare state. And I think that that, to a large extent, is true. And yet the converse is also true. We cannot keep the promises that we have made to people through our welfare state without immigrants. And I think a major example of that is Social Security. Certainly anyone who has ever attended any Cato program or read any Cato publication knows the trajectory of Social Security as we face a situation where the retirement population is dramatically growing and the working population to sustain that is shrinking. And we desperately need young working people, more of them, to keep that system going. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that the actuary for the Social Security Administration projects that over the next 25 years, if we bring in one million young working immigrants per year, it will produce $500 billion of contributions into the Social Security system. That alone shows the vital importance of having young working immigrants coming into our country. In addition to that, immigrants have higher birth rates, which can help us reverse our population decline. They are far more likely to start businesses than native-born Americans. They are far more likely to have intact families than native-born Americans. And in fact, they are far less likely to go on social welfare programs during their productive years than our native-born Americans. So when you put all of that together, you have a tremendously positive impact on the economy. Almost none of that, by the way, made it into the Heritage Foundation report. The second factor that makes immigration even more important than ever before is that for the first time, we're facing competition with other countries. We have always been the magnet for the best and the brightest that the world has, and that is what has made us, in large measure, 
the greatest nation on earth. Right now, we need to be that magnet more than ever because of how bad our K-12 educational system is. We are simply not producing the best and the brightest. We are not producing them. We need to import them. We all know, again, anyone who's read any Cato reports knows about how far down the ladder we rank in terms of math, writing, reading, science among the industrialized countries. And that is not going to change anytime soon. Not only that, but we're simply not producing adequate graduates in the areas that are generating wealth. We produce only about a third of the computer science graduates that we need for existing jobs. So we really have only two choices in this area while we try to improve our K-12 education system. One is to bring the best and the brightest in, and the other is to export the jobs. And we are, in fact, doing the latter. Microsoft recently opened a facility on the Canadian side of the Washington state border precisely because it was able to get access to higher skilled workers. Our post-secondary system of education remains by far the strongest in the world, and we do attract the best and the brightest to those universities. But then what do we do when they graduate? In most instances, they don't get visas to stay. So we are training, for example, Chinese students to become engineers, and they go back to China. Is that a wise investment on our part? I certainly don't think so. And a number of other countries are beginning to catch on and are out-competing us. Canada, for example, has one-tenth of our population and yet gives more visas to high-skilled workers than the United States does. If you go down to Chile today, you will see a part of Chile which is now called the Chilicon Valley. And you can guess what that is. That is an area where entrepreneurs from all over the world are welcomed into Chile and they contribute mightily to the economy. So we cannot allow our clocks to be cleaned. We need an immigration system that works. And it works so poorly in the area of greatest need, high-skilled workers. If we do bring in a high-skilled worker and give that person a visa, a number of things happen. First of all, it costs so much money that almost the only people who can bring them in are big companies. So we don't have the high-skilled immigrants working for small companies or for startups in most instances. We don't let them change jobs. If they change jobs, they lose their visa. And guess what? Their spouses aren't allowed to work at all. This is a really, really messed up system. And the reason it's a messed up system is that it is a system designed, it was a system created in the 1950s. Now, I was also created in the 1950s. I can't keep up with technology. Sure as heck, the immigration system is not going to be able to keep up with technology either. Now, many on the right, and this is something that I hear in Arizona all the time, and it's epitomized by Senator Jeff Sessions and what he's doing right now, they argue Listen, we've been sold a bill of goods in the past about how border security is going to get better. What we need to do is to secure the border first and then reform our immigration system. But we're not going to improve our immigration system until the border is secured. I compare that 
type of logic to a doctor saying, we're not going to treat the cancer until the symptoms disappear. Because border insecurity is a symptom of a broken immigration system. And if we don't replace, if we don't reform the immigration system, we will continue to have border insecurity. A lot of the border security first folks don't ask the most fundamental question. Why is it that people come here illegally? Do they get their kicks from paying some coyote thousands of dollars and risk their lives and leave their families in order to become illegal immigrants subject to being victims of crime and not being able to work openly in our society? Is that what they want to do? Of course not. No rational person would ever do such a thing. The reason they come illegally is because there is no way for them to come legally. And if they want to pursue opportunities, they will, they will come illegally. Uh, the border security first folks say, you know, these folks should simply get to the back of the line like everybody else. But if there is one thing that, that I learned as I, as I studied our current immigration uh, system, it is this. There is no line. There is no line for people to get in the back of. If you do not squeeze within one of the limited number of work-based visas, if you are not eligible for political asylum, and if you don't have a family member in the United States, there is no line for you to get into. And as a result of that, it doesn't matter how high you build the walls or how many surveillance cameras you put on the border, people seeking opportunities will come here. Uh, in my view, the best way to curb illegal immigration is to create a legal system of immigration that works for people. And when you do that, you will see illegal crossings, at least by people trying to, to come here to work, you will see that disappear. And you won't see it disappear without doing that. Now, we have not had a workable system of immigration in this country since the 1960s. And the reason that we haven't is that a fundamental transformation occurred in our immigration policy during the 1960s. That was the transformation of our system from a work-based immigration system to a family-based immigration system. And that has really not been a pronounced part of the debate, but in, in, in Governor Bush's, in my estimation, this is really the 800-pound gorilla that has to be dealt with in the immigration debate. If, for those of you who have not read the book or are not experts on immigration, I would ask each of you to think to yourself what the answer is to the following question. What percentage of the visas that are awarded to foreigners every year by the United States, what percentage of them are for work or skills-based visas? What would you think? The number is astounding. 13% of our visas are awarded for work or skills-based visas. That is by far the lowest of any industrialized country in the world. And it is far lower than it traditionally was in the United States. 
So who is getting the visas? Two-thirds of the visas go to family members of people who are already here. And that is because in the 1960s, we expanded the definition of family for purposes of giving preferences for immigration from the nuclear family of minor children and spouses to encompass parents and siblings. And that created the phenomenon that is known as chain migration because the siblings then and the parents became entitled to preferences as well. And the result has been twofold. First of all, the dramatic number of family preferences has crowded out eligibility and opportunities for work-based visas. And secondly, one of the things about family preferences is that a lot of the people brought in via family preferences are not productive young workers. They're children or elderly people who are far more likely to consume social services, especially education for children, than they are to contribute to the economy. So this is what has caused a lot of the problems with our current immigration system. Now, uh, for this reason, uh, Jeb and I believe that immigration reform cannot be done in piecemeal fashion. That is what uh, House Speaker John Boehner has suggested as a possibility. We believe it all has to be addressed at one time for two reasons. One is political. You cannot get a bill through the House and the Senate signed by the president unless both sides get some of the things that they want. But the second is also practical. All of these pieces are are interrelated to each other, and it is important to try to address them all together. Jeb and I suggest a number of critical reforms, and first and foremost is to reduce the family preferences, to redefine family preferences to encompass the nuclear family, to include minor children and, uh, and spouses. The second is probably the most obvious and important, and that is to dramatically increase the number of visas for high-skilled workers. Uh, in fact, Jeb and I would have no limit whatsoever. When you look at the economic productivity that high-skilled workers uh, create, um, the estimates are that each high-skilled worker himself or herself creates an additional four or five jobs based on, on what they do. Um, the effect in the economy of, of having high-skilled workers or entrepreneurs willing to invest in the United States is just incredible. We also support dramatically increasing the number of low-skilled workers. And this is an area where a lot of people say, why on earth without, uh, without skills? And the answer is, that there are a lot of jobs in our society that are not going to be filled unless immigrants are available to fill them. This has been an area of huge academic debate until recently Alabama and Georgia sent illegal immigrants packing. And what happened in that instance is that even though the farmers raised their wages that they were paying, um, Native-born Americans still were not filling the jobs. Plants, uh, crops died on the vines. Downstream jobs uh, such as agricultural processing went by the wayside. 
and the two states lost billions of dollars in gross domestic product. What ultimately had to happen is that the immigration system shifted political refugees down to Alabama and Georgia, and finally the labor needs were ultimately met. The U.S. Supreme Court handed down historic decisions this term, affirmative action, same-sex marriage, voting rights. Join us on September 17th for an in-depth analysis of those decisions at the Cato Institute's 12th annual Constitution Day with a keynote address by the Honorable David B. Sentel, Senior United States Circuit Judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. For a full schedule and to register for this event, visit cato.org slash Constitution Day. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.